comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and today's episode is called 50 Reasons Not to Kill Your Mammy. I did a bit of research and there are over 2 billion mammies in the world. Mother's Day is big business and last year in the UK alone we spent over £1.6 billion. There are 122.5 million phone calls made on Mother's Day. It would be two more than that if my kids remembered to call me. Male orcas live longer if their mum is still alive and part of their pod when they're adults. As some of you who follow me on social media may know, my male orca left home last week to become a zookeeper at Paynton Zoo in Devon. So I can vouch for the fact that proud as mum orcas may be, pods do feel kind of empty when they're gone. Can you hear me just for a second? I can hear you beautifully now. Yeah, so what I'll do is I'm going to borrow my my sister's headphones and they should work better. That's my guest today, Irish TV and radio personality Baz Ashmawi. Baz presents the hit Sky show 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy. He even won an Emmy for it. And by a bizarre coincidence, I was sitting about six feet away from him when it happened, though at the time we never met. I should say, Baz, we have actually met, but you won't remember. Shall I tell you uh, where we met? Yes, please. Now you're like, did I meet her on Tinder? Like, what is this? What's this? It's <laughs> I know it's not Tinder, I can assure you that. <laughs> as well as 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy, Baz has been a much-loved presence on TV and radio for many years, not least as the Nick Knowles of Ireland's DIY SOS on RTE1. In 2020, he launched his own podcast, The Good, The Baz and The Ugly, a podcast on which I have had the pleasure of appearing. There's a link to that in the show notes. Brilliant episode. I did my first stand-up gig when I was 45, but Baz's mammy, Nancy, pisses all over that, having done the highest skydive in the world, aged 70. I spoke to Baz from his Dublin home recently and we talked about mammies, daddies, kiddies, being fellow adrenaline junkies, nearly dying, imposter syndrome, tattoos, being tasered, grief, ageism, hitting rock bottom and bouncing back up again. But I started by asking him about how 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy came about. I was having a real dry patch with work and I was finding it hard to get shows away. And I'd gone to the UK and I'd got on fairly well with Sky. And, and after a weird meeting, I'd kind of, they'd kind of said they were looking for a travel show format. And everyone had said, they'd kind of said, oh, look, everything's been done at this stage, you know? And it's, uh, uh, and I was sitting in my mum's kitchen one day and there was a nun who had done a skydive. And my mum turned around and went, that'd be brilliant oh I'd love to do a skydive and she was 70 and I was like you're too old to do a skydive you'd have a heart attack as soon and I went home that night and I was in bed with my missus and I felt quite bad because I kind of hurt her feelings a little bit and then I was like well look if we were 
like I've done these kind of adventure comedy travel shows for years. And then I was like, what if we went back and did all those things that I did, like the wrestling alligators and, um, you know, uh, skydives and, and swim with sharks and, and, you know, all that kind of thing. And my mum was just game ball. So someone had actually said to me, Sky don't know what they're looking for. People don't know what they're looking for unless they can see it. And I decided to take my mum to a tattoo parlor in Dublin to pierce my nipple. And then, and then we went shotguns up the mountains in Wicklow. But I remember when we were in the tattoo parlor, it was all, it was quite busy. And there was all these really big burly guys around and they were pissing themselves. But she was doing it really, really slowly. And they were like, my pain was giving them such enjoyment that I actually, something clicked and I thought, God, we might be onto something here because she's such a character. She wasn't tempted to have hers done as well. You thought that was a bridge too far. I don't think I'd mentally recover from watching my mother get nipple rings, but, but it, was, um, it was just something in it that was, it was just so fun to see this kind of older person do these, do these things and, and her, just the way she interacted, it was just really fresh and also very inspiring, you know. And plus there's that relationship that I have with my mum that um, it was just great. It was just great fun. Like she's, she's one, see, reality TV is brilliant, but reality TV is shit because the people who want to be on it want to be on TV. My mother had no interest in being on TV. That's what made her great. She was just like, oh, God, where are we going? I wouldn't even tell her where we were going every day. Like, she just arrived somewhere and I go, oh, today we're doing the Sahara, you know, rally through the deserts. And I just wouldn't tell her anything. And that way I could manage her fear levels. You know, it was... Um, I'm guessing by 70, you had an idea of her personality. Because she wrote... You, your, so your dad, I know you did an interview with Tommy Tiernan a couple of days ago that's had a, that got you a lot of credit for being so vulnerable about your dad leaving when you were, it was, you were eight, right? When your dad yeah, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your mum, you must've known your mum had some kind of backbone through those years, I guess. So did you, were you surprised your mum had this much pluck or? This person I know, like mentally people, this is the mistake people make. You look at someone and you assume, oh, it's a little old lady. This is what people think. And this is, this is a mentally, this is an SAS soldier. Like this is a woman who just survived to work two jobs on her own and um, raised a real difficult kid and, and just did it all, you know, and, and just mentally, I, I just never seen her fail at anything. So I knew that, but what I realized and was kind of offended by, by the end of it was my mother kind of thought, well, you're a fucking idiot. So I'm not going to listen to anything you say, but this guy's an expert. So I listened to him. So I became this kind of side character where she would just focus on whoever the expert was, you know, teaching her to hand glide or, or you know, you know, tattoo person or whatever it was. And she would just focus on them. And, and then she would just go and do these unbelievable things, you know. And did you worry for her? I know you said, um, I think the, the sky, was the skydive the first one that you did together? Yeah, and that was the one. Because my dad did a skydive with me when he was a bit younger than your mum. And the thought of, I didn't see my dad go out of the plane, but you, you saw your, your mum went before that's, you, right? That's what messed me up. We oh. were both in the plane. Like I thought if we're going to do one, we might as well do the highest skydive you can do. Because what's the difference? You're up in the sky, like, you know. And one minute she was there and then she was just jumped out of a plane. And I was like left in the plane. And I was like, 
oh god oh oh god so for the whole jump down for me all i was thinking was where's mum like where, where's mama and she disappeared behind these kind of trees and i just i just i bawled like a baby when i found her because she'd she'd been stuffing her face on paninis and coffees and and she it's when she landed she got a bit sick but like to this day if you were to ask her it's her favorite thing that she ever did is she it said, so that's her yeah. favorite one of the whole yeah, thing well for me you you couldn't get me to do that again with her never in a million years i just I couldn't, it's, it was just, it was just, I had no control. I couldn't grab her. Most things that we do, I can kind of, I can kind of protect her. But that one, because it was our first stunt as well, it was just terrifying. But um, but she loved it. She loved it. She'd do one again. You know? I keep wondering, my, my son is uh, 20 plus years younger than you. And I keep wondering, and he's autistic. So we've had this kind of very close relationship, but quite a, it's challenged relationship for both of us, but also an amazing relationship. And the thought of actually trying to collaborate with one of my adult kids, first of all, they think I'm a complete dick. So anything I would say, they'd be like, oh, Christ, that you're so embarrassing. Was there a point at which then does the mum-son relationship change? Or do you think you still felt like, it sounds like she was still like, look, I'm your mum, you're an, you're an asshole. You stand over there and let me deal with it. Was, was it still very much parent-child with Nancy being the parent? I think so. I think you just naturally, like, the brilliant thing about working with my mum was that I know her so well. And she's inherently a good person. So I know anything she says off camera, which I used to shoot her on a wide lens for the whole first series. Because as soon as she saw the camera, she'd be a bit like, okay, I'll, so I'll watch what I say here. While if, if she couldn't see the camera in her face, like she'd give me a bollocking. Like I was trying to get her to taser me in the back. And she was like, I'm not tasering you in the back. Like, what? and I was like, I've been tasered before. And she's like, you're full of shit. Where have you been tasered before? And, you know, and we'd have these great conversations that were honest and real. And that was the great thing that I, about working with my mum is a lot of it is these big stunts, but the real kind of um, crutch of it all is that relationship between a mum and a son, you know, and you, you get to, you get that, kind of, you get to a little insight into that as the series goes on and you're invested because there's nothing particularly crazy about it but it's just a real mum and son relationship and a lot of people can kind of relate to that you know I'm a grown man and I'm still going to do what my mum says it's just the way it is that's just life with Nancy you know and it also busts through as you say stereotypes about you know what you can do at a certain age so I think there's something brilliant seeing people we were in the in the airport and we were checking in and at this stage my mum had done the intercontinental rally she'd wrestled alligators she'd done the highest skydive in the world she'd gone on a on a, a bounty hunter raid in Vegas as well, like kicking down doors and stuff. And and the air hostess, I'll always remember, we were we booked emergency exit exit seats, and she said, "And how old is she?" And and I was like, "Well," and my mum gave me this look, you know, that look of this fucking bitch now. But my mum would never say that. And <laughs> I, I I was like, "Well, you can ask her." And she went, "Would would she be strong enough in that seat? Do you think?" And my mom, I could see my mum just boiling. But this is what people do. They just assume this little old like Like if, if you ever see my mum on holiday or talking to people, she's sitting on a bench telling them about the time, you know, she shot uh, AR-15s out in Vegas and things like that. She's, it's like sitting beside Forrest Gump. She's got these <laughs> unbelievable stories that you're kind of going, is that real? But she's done all that shit. She, she's entitled to that. Like she, she owned all that. And afterwards it turned her into 
it gave her really a new lease of life, a new lease of confidence. And I think that's just even hanging around young crews and sound men and producers and young people and lots of people having fun. And, and it gave her a real energy because I think before that she was a little bit lost. She'd been a nurse for 50 years and maybe she, she was wondering what her self-worth was. And to me, like, she's just, she's so much more than that, you know. I was, I was, I was slagging her going, when I do your eulogy, it's going to be a real pain in the arse. I'll get to 70 and then I'll be like, right, and then she became a TV star. You know, like, it'll... And you did a documentary about your mum dying. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I, we didn't release it yet because because of COVID and we thought it in bad taste, but we looked at funerals and that relationship between the two of us. And what was funny about it is it was all about like, cause we've never had that conversation. I'm an only son to my mum, So, so I don't know, maybe it's my own childishness where I felt I couldn't deal with it, but I thought it's a great conversation to have. So if we're going to do it, let's do it real and let's document it. And at the start I went, mum, this might be a bit upsetting for you. And she laughed and she went, it's not going to be upsetting for me. It's going to be upsetting for you. Swear to God, I fucking bawled the whole way through the whole documentary. It's just me crying, basically, and being a complete mummy's boy. And but but it's real. It's 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 honest. You know. Are you glad you did it? Because I can't imagine it. It's like torture, right? To get that close to thinking about, and also because you lost your dad. You lost your dad when you were were yet to really become a man, didn't you? You were like 20, 21? 20, twenty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know my my partner lost his dad when he was nineteen. And I know the impact it's had on him throughout his life and also watching his son now still having a relationship with him as he becomes an adult. So I guess um, having had that brush with death so young, it must be really immensely painful to think about your mum going through that. I I suppose it's just to know what she wants. You know, those little things that she wants, you know, do do you want to be cremated? Where would you like, do you want to be buried? Do you want to... Um, what do you want? What music do you want? Is there something something you care about? Like, because I don't care about that stuff. Like for me, I'm just like, look, man, just don't bury me. Like cremate me, and I'm done. Like and fling me over some cliff somewhere. But my mum had little things that she wanted, and we hadn't discussed them. We hadn't discussed. It was a very personal kind of journey between the two of us. It's not what you want to think about, but it's better to have that conversation beforehand than just be left sitting upset in some funeral parlor. You know, I was like, would you like a big gold Gaddafi? Like, <laughs> would you, you know, I'm an Arab. So like, I, I, I go for that. That impresses me. But maybe you'd, maybe you'd like a little wicker basket, something cheap, you know. And, and she's, she's like the Kim Kardashian of Dublin now, isn't she? She's going to want, she's going to want Beyonce singing. It's going to be like the Super Bowl or the inauguration. That's it. I want it to be. Want some crappy wicker basket. Like Biggie dying, where people are hanging out of flats in Dublin and just playing music and, you know. But. You said it kind of gave her a new lease of life, but it sounds like you needed a new lease of life at the same time she got one through the show. Because it was 10 years ago that you had, so you had the, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention it, but I'm going to, so you had the drink driving thing with and, and a temporary off air with RTE. And then you had the yeah. lung, was it a lung collapse? You, yeah, you, was that the same year? That was straight after it was, it was, it was, yeah, 2011, I think, was the lung collapse. Was that like when everyone hated Boris with the first lockdown and then he got COVID and everyone's like, oh, we really like him again. Did you think, like, I need to, I know this is before lockdown, you're like, I need to just pull something out of the bag now. I know if my lungs collapse, everyone's going to like me again. They're going to be like, what a hero. This will counter the drink driving you know, thing. It was literally, if I touch it, it will turn to shit right now. <laughs> it was that kind of level of, 
it just can't keep like it just things were just going wrong and wrong and wrong and that's what happens sometimes life and is, is that so was the drink driving at the end of a curve of everything going wrong or was that the start of things starting to go wrong no i think that was the the start of everything starting to go wrong it was a dark kind of it was one of those uh crossroads in your life where you're just like oh, i don't like who i am anymore i don't like where i'm at uh, and what am I going to do? A lot of self-pity and self-loathing and all that kind of thing. And then I suppose you're looking around you and, and, and maybe that industry that I'd worked in and for a long time wasn't, wasn't receiving me anymore. Do you get me? And then when I got sick, you just think, because your health, especially me, like I'm a, uh, I, I was just something I never even considered. So to be lying in a hospital bed, like with, dying basically <laughs> was a bit extreme so so that yeah just came out of the blue did it i was just on a flight from back from um from the uk and uh yeah uh, my my lung just collapsed on the flight so by the time i got to the hospital they were like listen you know I, I, your one actually said to me i think you're having a panic attack and i was like uh, i'm fucking having a great day I, i'm not having a panic attack and um and she seemed so young the doctor i remember thinking my God, she must be about 11. She's probably writing in crayon because she got on top of me and she, they had this rod that they have to pierce through your chest plates. And she must have broken about five of them. And I ended up being delirious and flinging her off me. And, um, and I woke up and yeah, I'd had this lung surgery. But a doctor had come over to me in the, min- in the middle of all that and said, Look, your, your, your lung is at about 2% now. Once that gets to zero you're going to go into the serious cardiac arrest and you're going to be in serious shit so he gave me a hard slap across the face told me to lift my arm over my head and they stabbed me through the rib cage wow and i was just like it was just extreme you know it was just it was just like living someone else's life but that's what that period was like for a while it was like kind of being outside yourself and, and living someone else's life and then just having to start again you know just start again like so how do you, when you think about, um, you know, the podcast is all about comedy meets self-help meets work. And I guess your story is pretty apt on all of those. Um, I know you're not a comedian. I don't believe you've ever been officially a comedian, but you're mm-hmm. funny. You're known for being funny. And if you think about lots of people right now will be wanting to bounce back and thinking I've literally lost everything. No one's picking up the phone. I haven't got any money coming in. So how do you go from, it sounds like you, do you think you were depressed before at that point in your life? It's, you said it was a dark period. I, I think, I think you have moments where you're, where you, you tag yourself with a certain identity. Do you get me? And that can be a good or a bad thing. And you can see yourself, you know, you can start to go, I'm a loser. I had it all. I've lost it all now. And I used to, I used to be great. And everyone in our profession is like the imposter syndrome is a massive thing Mm. for a lot of people, you know? And I suppose everyone has an element to that where they thought I had it. I I was doing it all. I fucked it up. And now I'm, now I'm done, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just an attitude. I have, I have a niece and a nephew twins and I was watching them in a cot one day and the little lads, to put the two of them in and the little lad just kind of resigned and he just went look I'm, I'm, I'm stuck oh that's it and he had a bottle and he was sucking on the bottle and his sister got a cushion and a teddy bear and stood on the teddy bear and flung her leg over the side and escaped and it, that is what it is one it's a will it's a will 
like sometimes it's really nice to have people around you who are going to support you and you know who are going to inspire you and pat you on the back and tell you you're going to do great and it's all going to work out and sometimes those fucking people don't exist and some, sometimes I think you'll think those people are your wife or someone really close to you and they're not yeah you have to rescue yourself don't you i guess that's what all that like we pay a lot of money to therapists just to say you got to rescue yourself and you and it's hard in our business right because we're all referenced by everything that's going on around us and then you realize you know that needs that shit will come and it will go and somehow we need to still know who we are and back ourselves so how do you go from how do you go from that so you're literally kind of on your knees you're physically ill by then you were married right so you've because you've yeah. got six you've got six kids kids yeah and you've had so, f and two of them you had, they were little kids at that point, were they? Where yeah, were you when they, you? Yeah, yeah. So that's probably what spurred me on more than anything. I was just like, you know, I'd gone for a meeting and um, one of the head, one of the execs had said to me, I'd go back and do whatever you were doing before you were a TV presenter. Maybe go back and do something like you were doing before. And I was like, you want me to work for Double Day Book Club? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is what I do. I make telly. Like, I, I, I love it. Like, why, I don't want to do anything else. And I left. And I remember having this moment where I was sitting on a wall having a cigarette and the, the lighter blew up in my face. And that, that was my rock bottom where I just thought, if I'm going to make a break, I better make a break to the UK and come up with a really good idea and and just make it happen. So I, I started to... my my um. My father-in-law had a building down the road that was taken by the banks that was empty. And I used to go there every day with my laptop and just work and come up with ideas and a whiteboard and just write ideas and write and write and write and write. And I kept writing up stuff until I came across kind of 50 ways. So at that point, you're on your own, you're motivating yourself. You're worried if you're going to have money to raise your kids. You've got not just one kid, but six kids. You're trying to think about how you support and how do you then, because people say, don't they, they talk about leaning into feeling bad. So, you know, you think about meditation and mindfulness and kind of accepting the state you're in. And I guess there's a danger with that. You might just go, well, actually, things are really shit. I'm feeling really low. I just need to look after myself and go with this. But somehow you turned that into, I'm going to just create, I'm going to keep going. Something inside me is going to happen. Where does that come from then? Because not everyone manages to do that, right? Some people would have just rolled over at that point and said, I, I just can't. I suppose there's an there's just something in me that believed that this is what I I'm good at. I was one of those kids that was always lost growing up a little bit and didn't and I knew like I loved being on stage, I loved theater, I loved I loved that, I loved making telly, I understood telly. You know, I understood what good telly was and I could see the difference. I believed in myself. Also desperation is an awful great motivation <laughs> it really. sure is. like when you don't have other options you'll do whatever i like i'm not proud i'll wash dishes i'll do whatever i have to to make money for my family i don't, I don't care about that but this was what i love doing you know and this is what i i saw way back from but i, I you have to work for it Namaste, motherfuckers. do you think not having had a dad raising you so your dad first of all you know leaving when you were young and then dying when you were still a young man do you think that made you take 
your responsibilities as a man and as a dad even more seriously? Do you think you were like, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be present, I'm going to make this shit happen? Just a lot of faces relying on you, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's a lot of faces. That's like, a, that is a, a football, how many, I don't know how many are in a football team. Yeah. Surely that's got to be correct. dodgeball team anyway. It's eight <laughs> people looking at you, you know? So, so but but I, I, also, I also connected myself with other talented people. Like I worked with a, um, a guy called Barry Egan, who's an amazing director. And we both got the vibe. We both made telly before. And I was like, listen, let's, like, I can't find anything. So let's make our own production company. Let's do this. Like I worked in sales for years. Like put me in a room and I can pitch. You know, I'm, I'm good like that. So I knew what my strengths were. But it was just getting into the room. That, that's the thing. It's getting into the room and being ready sometimes. You know, so you it, had an ally, you had somebody to work with you, because sometimes that's the, that's, we were talking before we started recording about our mutual friend, Neil, and he's like a really good ally of mine. And he and I just get on the phone and talk about stuff and try and do stuff. And sometimes you just need somebody to help you create shit. Because if you think about what you do, what I do, it's all dependent on having an audience. And I guess when the world goes a bit quiet, so when the world went quiet for you 10 years ago, literally your audience is taken away from you and it's really hard as a performer to know who you even are when you don't have an audience I was doing a stage show last year and i hadn't done a stage show before so it was like, like an hour and 20 stand-up and i was like for someone who's never got up on stage and done stand-up i was like how the hell am i going to do this and it wasn't until the first night was out of the way where i was like oh my god this is really good do you know what I mean? So wait, you went from not being a stand-up, I just, earlier I said you're not a comedian, so you went from not being a stand-up to managing to knock a, an hour and 20 straight out of uh, the park, because well, that's just, this is just, I'm have to hang up on you now. That's a lie, I, I should explain. <laughs> I, sat with, I sat with a director that I know, he's a stage director, and I said, I really want to put on a show. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. It wasn't for monetary value. It wasn't for anything like that. I do a lot of public talks. I go to colleges and universities and Google and Amazon and places like that. And I do talks and everything. But this was, I just wanted to do my story in a stand-up. And I was like, will you help me? Will you direct me? Because otherwise I'm just writing all this on my own. So I wrote it. He helped me edit it. And we put it on as a stage show. And how did it go? Because I just, there's lots I, of us, you know. When I played brilliant, I complained, I was only playing to like four or 500 people, you know. Only, do you know, and at the Edinburgh Fringe, if we can get four or five people, we're like, this is, a, as long as there's more people in the audience than on the stage, we're like, this is a big win. Me, we were supposed to go to Edinburgh this year after, you know, on the back of everything. And I was so happy, I was so excited because just, it's a personal thing for me. I worked in comedy clubs as a barman, do you get me? I watched comedians for years. I love comedy, you know, I was always a fan. So it was just my own little personal goal that I have. And that's the thing about what you were saying there about kind of motivating yourself. It's how you see yourself. Like for many years, I just saw myself as a TV presenter. And then I did radio and all of a sudden, okay, now I'm a radio TV presenter. And then after a while, I was like, hold on, my ideas are better than this fucker's ideas. Okay, so I'll produce my own TV now. So all, you know, it's just what labels you put on yourself. And, and I think when you're in our industry, you better be able to stretch. You better be able to mix it up. Like you're talented, you, you've got talent. So how can you disperse that talent? Is it true social media? Is it true um, um, stand-up? Is it true uh, radio, podcast? Is it true um, TV, documentary? Is it like, what is it? And that's why I try and keep, 
I try and keep the bubble I'm in quite broad, you know, I try and just throw a lot of shit at the wall and something's going to stick. A few things, a few things seem to be sticking for you. And did the, um, and in terms of the comedy, because you've, um, when, when I get booked to do corporate speeches and keynotes and stuff, I always say, don't go big on the fact I'm a comedian, go big on my business background. And then I will reveal my story as a comedian, which is a lovely way to do it because no one's expecting you to be funny. And it's very easy to be funnier than, you know, Gavin, the CEO who brought you on stage. Absolutely. So you've always, so you've been a really funny presenter. It's voice. easier. It's yeah, it's easier. easier. And then now you're like, I'm going to actually be fun. This is my show. I'm, I'm putting a badge on it. I'm going to be funny for an hour and 20. So, yeah. And then you still pulled it off. But it's funny for me, like even, it's funny because I was arguing with my sister about it. She was going, why don't you call it a stand-up show? You always say it's a stage show. And it's my own insecurity about saying it's a stand-up show because just comedians out there and they go, oh, he's doing stand-up now, is he? You know, where, where I just feel a bit, I felt a bit shocked. So for myself, I just wanted to see, could I stand on the stage with a mic? and entertain people for for a long time, like for, for a decent amount that I could justify them paying me. Would would that work? And it worked. And I was um, like, wow, it was a lot of work now, but I loved it. I just loved, I loved the fact that I set myself a little goal and I achieved it. And I think life is like that. From do you think- getting, getting up in the morning, making your bed, honestly, just like those little wins. They all well, count. And with six kids, there's a lot of beds to be made in your house, I would imagine. So it's, uh, yeah, getting up at all, getting everyone up. And is the, um, so when you think about your adrenaline junkie thing, right? So you've traveled the world. You, you obviously, um, you like adrenaline. You've had the kind of ups and downs. Is it like a kind of snakes and ladders thing for you? Do you, do you think that your personality, you know, as, as someone who's a fellow adrenaline junkie mm-hmm. and always trying to take the difficult route, and then I love the highs and I hate the lows, but I really don't like flat. I do not like, I like the world to be unpredictable. And I would sooner be in some drama at either end of the scale than just toodling along. Um, there's that story about, I think it was the Glenn Miller band and they got stranded somewhere outside Chicago or somewhere. And the whole load of them had to walk in their you know, dinner jackets with all their instruments across these muddy fields on the outskirts of whatever the American town was. And they're all in the mud and they're trying to get to the huge venue they're playing. And then they walk past this beautiful house on the outskirts of the town. And they see this really beautiful woman cooking dinner for her lovely husband and the kids sitting there watching the television and this beautiful tableau of family life. And one of the musicians looks at another and goes, how do people live like that? And I thought that <laughs> and when you tell that to some people, they're like, I don't get it. But there's that thought of like, I, I couldn't do flat. I couldn't do normal. So yeah. can you have the kind of amazing jumping out of a plane with your mom doing an hour and 20 of stand up when you've never done any before? Can you have that without the lows? There are different kicks. I, I think what it is, is I think for, say for, for my family, for my family to be happy, I have to be happy. I have to be happy. So I need to go out and I need to do an hour, hour stand up. I need to do that. I need to go off and make a TV show. I need, I don't look for, for validation or anything from people in my family. I get that outside. Which yeah, is probably I'm, lucky. You're probably not. <laughs> watch TV. Like she didn't even know I was on TV. Like she's no interest in it, you know, and that suits me great. Cause I don't need that. I don't, I, I don't have that, but I need, there's things I need for myself to be happy. What it is, is, is never getting too high and never getting too low. That's the trick because when you're up here, trust me, you're coming down, you're coming down one way or the other. And when you're down there, don't worry about it. 
like everyone gets down there, you're going to come back up. So if you can keep a balance somewhere in the middle where you're sane and you never get, it's like critics. I've had a thing with critics for years where I really wanted to be validated by them for ages. And even like when I did Mammy and we won an Emmy for it, there was Irish critics in the, in the Indo and stuff slating me. And I was like, I don't care anymore, actually. You know, so, but the problem with that is now I get really good reviews for shows I've just done. I can't take them. I can't take the good reviews because I chose not to take the good or bad reviews. They say you're never as good as your best gig or as bad as your worst gig, don't they? That's what that's the stand-up thing. Um, and I guess it's yeah, it's, it's a good thing to. I, I remember I think it's Joe Brand who said, or maybe it was Sarah Millicum said, you should always let go of any bad gig you've had the night before. Just let it go. By eleven o'clock the next day, doesn't matter if it's a good gig, a bad gig. By eleven the next day, you just move on to the next one. Exactly, and I think there's a part of you as well that the, the fails you learn. You don't learn from the wins. You learn from the fails. Like they're like you've got to you've got to stumble. You've got to make fuck ups to to fix it next time and make it better. You never learn as much from a good gig as a bad gig. That's what they say. I think it's the truth. Like I really do. It's, people's power can sometimes affect you, and that's something you have to be really careful of. Is especially in my industry. Like because I walk into a room, maybe I'm the biggest shit in the room. Great. All of a sudden, next thing, Graham Norton walks in. Now, all of a sudden, no one gives a shit about me. It's Graham Norton, right? If I let Graham Norton's power affect my power of me, that's my fault. Do you get me? Like, in this industry, that's what happens a lot. You shrink if you let yourself shrink. I've come to a stage in my life where I'm very lucky in the sense that I'm really okay with me. And whoever is around me doesn't really affect how I am. I don't change. I still feel my own confidence and my own power. I still feel that. But I've seen other people dwindle around, you know, you're never, there's always someone bigger. You know, it's like there's always a bigger fish. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. You have to be careful to protect yourself, not to diminish as soon as, because you're, you're enamored by someone else's power, you know? It's also fame, isn't it? I know that one of the things I, as you know, started doing this much later in life. So I had kind of high status. brilliant. <laughs> exactly what I'm talking about. It's a you know, great I, idea to give up a well-paid job just before a global pandemic, rely on global audiences who now can't see you because the rooms are shut. But hey, but no, it is. It's But going from all those years of being the person in the room who everyone wanted to come in, you know, wanted me to be a judge at the Emmys, wanted me to vote for their film for a BAFTA, wanted me at all the right parties in Edinburgh. And then suddenly you're starting as a comic and it is like, it's like, you know, if I was starting out as a plumber, I would be the one unblocking the toilets before I could be putting in the central heating system. So it's where you need to be. But it was such a weird thing for me, but also the lack of the lack of scariness of being with people who were, you know, in inverted commas famous, because I was so used to being with people who were really successful and well known to me. It just felt like, well, I've spent I grew up with people like this and it doesn't matter to me. So um, I, I know what the gap is between how I lack talent and how they have talent. I can see the gap really clearly. So it's not an arrogance. It's not me going, I'm like them. But in terms of status, I think it's what you say. And you'll hear, you know, these celebrity, you know, podcasts and interviews. Everybody you ever see, no matter how successful they are, they've always got the film role they didn't get that really rankles. You know, I couldn't watch Titanic because I was supposed to get the Kate Winslet role. There's always another story like that, isn't there? No matter how high you get. There's a gene, right? I'll do a TV show, right? I did a TV show at Christmas. And there's comments left on my Instagram page, right? Like thousands. And they're all there. There's one comment that's snide out of all of them. Everything else is absolutely gorgeous. Focus on that one comment, right? 
I, you know, it's, it's something in the brain that is self-critical sometimes and can't, can't decipher between negative criticism and positive criticism. So you have to protect yourself from it. You have to sit by your work and go, I was happy. I did that as best as I can. You know, the room was hard that night, whatever. The TV show went on out on a bad night. It's, you know, whatever. You know, it, you just have to not care always so much what other people think and care a little bit about what you think. Everyone wants to, they want to be appreciated by their peers. My big buzz I get is if I walk down the street and people are, people are buzzing about the stuff that I do. That means much more to me than some some critic or you know some some anonymous person on Twitter or whatever it is. You know, but now that you're up, now that you're you would almost obviously you would have won an award in Edinburgh had you gone with your show. It's a great shame it was shut because you never got to win the comedy award that you no <laughs> doubt would have won. Uh, but the, now that you are a comic, uh, you will be aware of the cut. There's a cartoon, a famous cartoon, and it shows the kind of audience view in a comedy club. And there's the audience, everyone's pissing themselves laughing, and there's one person looking really stony faced. And then it shows the comedian's view, and everyone's blacked out, and all they can see is the miserable face looking at them. And you really. <laughs> I'm sure you had that when you did, you know, when you've done yours. It's so tempting. And also you want to convert the person who's looking at you like they want to kill you. You're like, I am going to work on you. And by the end of the hour, you're going to want to marry me. And they, yeah, instead of looking at the soft ground. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's, these are just, they're very natural things, you know, when, and especially when you do something like you do or what I do, you're putting yourself out there a lot of the time. You know, it's not like being an actor where I play a part and, you know, you might like my character or, you know, it's different. You're much more vulnerable. You're much more open. You're saying, this is me. And, and do you like me or do you not like me? I saw Jonathan Ross say a thing before he meant, if 40% if, if of the people that are watching your show think you're okay, you're doing pretty damn good. And that's Jonathan Ross saying that. So yeah, we could all- You know what I mean? And do you think in terms of people thinking that you're okay, um, if you look at like the, cause you grew up as an only child and yet now you've got six kids. So you, you know, you had your own way of referencing whether you were okay, who you were, what you were doing as a kid. I guess you and your mum were very close. I know then you lived with your dad for a bit as a teenager in Cairo for a bit. So, so you could not have had a more different upbringing to your, your kids. So how does an only kid cope with having six kids apart from going off around the world as much as they can and <laughs> yeah, see you, Tanya. I, I, I think it's just more time consuming because there are all these different individual personalities like some are super academic and some just I've one boy like I, I like he just says nothing I don't know what's going on he's either the deepest thinker in the world or he's just fuck all going on I really can't <laughs> tell and um, women are going to love him one way or the other but uh <laughs> You know, they, I've all these different personalities. I've an artist who's a vegan and she's all that. And then I have another daughter and she's got the stuff going on with her. And, you know, like they're all so different. What's the age range? So the youngest, from, is Hannah the youngest? From eight, yeah. And Mahi is the youngest. So she's eight up to 24. Okay. You know? And there's so, one, and one of them in particular is close with your mum, right? Is it, I've seen on your Insta page and heard you talk about it. It's Hannah. Hannah, Hannah. and your mum are like little soulmates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're they're tight, you know. Um, so yeah, so so my mum did a thing with me growing up where she was just, she kind of explained to me about having a work ethic, and also she was incredibly positive all the time. Like, I I by the age of like seventeen, eighteen, I just thought I could do anything if I if I was willing to apply myself. 
you know, and I still kind of have a little bit of that in me where I'm like, if I work really fucking hard, if I work, if I try my very, very best at this and I fail, then I can't fail. It's sort of working out for you though, that, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, you had your, do you think you needed that big crash? Because you obviously had a successful career, then a bit of a crash, and then you've totally resurged and beyond. Do you think there was something about learning to be more vulnerable during that period? Because you said you were kind of, if you're a cocky 18 year old, things go well. Does that need to come down for it to be? I think I'd reached a stage where maybe I had no new goals. I think I'd reach a stage where I went, I want my own TV show, I want my own radio show. You know, I want an article to be writing articles in the paper. And then once I had that, I was like, well, I have all that now, you know, and it was complacent. And maybe that's why I keep thinking you should keep changing things up. Like I make TV, like I, I watch TV. Sometimes I want to make a comedy, I'll make a comedy. Sometimes I want to do a heavy documentary on problem gambling. I'll do a documentary on problem gambling. Then I want to do something light again. Then I want my mum to go meet the Pope. So we'll go off and meet the Pope. You know, like whatever mood I'm in, I make telly like that. And then if I'm bored or if I'm restless or feel like I don't have a chance, I go, right, let's do a stage show. Why don't we write a stage show? Like I wrote a script last year that we were close to getting commissioned like about a, a mixed race uh egyptian irish egyptian family in dublin and like i i, I remember bringing it to bbc like five years ago i was sitting on it, i brought it to bbc and bbc were like it's great we changed the main protagonist to a woman i was like hold on <laughs> not, not unless I turn into Mrs. Fucking Deadfire, we can't. I was like, no, like I, I wrote it to be in it. So I was like, no, I'm keeping that. And then five years later, now it's starting to move along a little bit. And I was like, you just have to keep working. You've got to keep working, you know, you, whatever it is. You know yourself, you could write a brilliant stage show and just something clicks and you go, this is a comedy. This is a drama. This is a TV show. This is Fleabag. You know, you don't know, but but you know when something is good. And that's the thing. I think anything, and having worked in sort of telly, most of my, I know when, you know, we first worked on South Park and we didn't think, we looked at that and we're like, that this probably won't go anywhere. This is like, no one wants this shit. No, no, you know, no one's watching this stuff. And uh, if only I could pretend, you know, that I had a crystal ball when I did finally get to work on it and realized it really was something kind of, but I turned that show down to represent internationally when I first saw it, I was like, this is, no one's going to watch this shit. So, um, so obviously I left my industry, not before time, uh, but it is, uh, but, but those things take a really long time, right? The gestation period as well, because you have to have the faith in the stuff you're trying to do. And, you know, 17 people may not like it and the 18th person commissions it. And suddenly everyone's like, oh, we always knew this would be a great idea. It's funny, like when I think back to something like, I use Mammy as a reference because Mammy was, um, 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy was such a, a industry successful show, as in it got sold to like 140 countries, it won Emmys and shit like Your that. Your mum got chatted up by Michael Douglas. It was a good night. Yeah. Things like that people remember, right? <laughs> I, I think I've made other shows that are different and also brilliant, but but this is the one that people use as a benchmark. I pitched that a year before that under a different name and they just they, they didn't even look at it. They were like, oh, we just want to do a show with you. I changed the name of it and showed them a clip and all of a sudden they got it straight away. Like, I mean, I sent it on a Friday. I think I sent it on a Friday. Monday morning, they were asking me to come to London like to just to box it off. You know, it was that. Was it the nipple piercing moment that did it, do you think? Was that the turning point? I think it's just sometimes, I I do believe in that, even for yourself sometimes. Sometimes you need to to see something, to to know in your gut 
but this is good. This is this is okay. It's the reason comedians go into a small bar and, and play to 30 people to test gags. Because sometimes you're not sure and then you, you play them and you go, oh, I was right. That is really good. Or, or I was wrong. Not... I need to go and try this again before I inflict this on the next 30 people. Absolutely. You know, you, you just need to test things a little bit because you can't be 100% what's, what's right or wrong. But I, I'd be a fan of going with your gut a lot of the time and not always listen. to. If you ask 10 people's opinion, 10 people will give you 10 different opinions a lot of the time. You so do have you to have play it. Your own compass, you know? But you do get a lot of rejection. I mean, I know that if you think about shows, I used to work in game shows for years and creating them and, and, and producing them and shows like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you know, that was turned down a lot. And then finally they played it. They actually played it with the then commissioner of entertainment at ITV. They had real, real money, not a million, but they had real money and really played it. And suddenly she was like, I get it. I totally get it. I want it. But it needed to be played. Absolutely. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment? So uh, your life changing moment. I have, I've had a few, if I'm honest with you. You've had more than a few. You could, we could do a whole, like, we could do 50 of these and keep asking you that <laughs> question. <laughs> I had one where I was in a pitch meeting in Sky and I was a presenter and I was with a producer and the producer was, was pitching a show that was kind of like robot wars with cars where people build cars and they crashed them into each other and the commission was just like yeah no what else have you got and he kept pitching this same idea and I got to the stage where I was like stop fucking pitching that idea and we, we only had this meeting for a very short amount of time so I was like I was to the the commission editor we were talking to I was like you just tell me what you think you want, right? Because I, we can pitch loads of shit. You don't like this, that's fine. Because he was like, do you like cars? I was like, I have a car. Like, <laughs> you know, there was no connection between me and this shitty show your mom was pitching. And, and as he was talking, I was like, I realized in that moment that I'm a better producer myself than this guy. Because I could listen to what someone was looking for, you know? And, and I left that meeting. It was the last time I was ever just a presenter. It was the last time I put a label on myself saying, this is just what I am. And that's the problem. Like, just because someone's called a producer, like if you're a presenter, if you're in my game, you should be, if you're waiting for someone to drop the golden idea on your lap, it might happen when you're really hot and people are, you know, people are trying to come up with formats for you. But in general, you know you better. You should be coming up with your own ideas. I like the fact that you did it. A lot of people wait until, so once they've got the massive name, the massive show, you know, I think Graham Norton set up his own production company a few seasons into what he was doing. Um, that's, I think, when So Television came about. But you sort of went the other way. So when you were kind of down on your luck, you were like, I'm going to go at this from presenter, producer. It wasn't a sort of vanity company. It was the opposite. It was like a survival mechanism, Absolutely. right? I'm going to be this person, this person. I'm going to take no risks. I'm going to take this on from every angle till I get the show yeah and like it's not like i'm opposed to like i work on i do the irish um diy sos over here i, I do the nick Knowles job over here in ireland that's um, a lot of crying when you can't hug anyone at the moment right oh, it's, oh, man, it's heartbreaking it's really really difficult you know and i'm 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 different to nick as in like i'm behind diggers bawling like like it's not a good <laughs> look for anyone um i'm upsetting everybody but but we're, we're different like that. But that's not my production. I work on, you know, I work for another production company and that's fine. But there has to be an element in your mind of producing yourself. 
whether that's producing a stage show, producing comedy, producing documentary, producing whatever it is. Stop putting labels on yourself that limit you. You know, that's that's kind of what I got from that one meeting. I walked away and I was like, if, I'm, if I want to push me, you know, whether it's on a podcast or whatever, I'm going to push myself the hardest, you know. I love the idea that with, um, I, I did my first sort of big Edinburgh show uh, the year I turned 50 last year and I called it Invisible because there was this B-list French celebrity who made global headlines because he, he was a 50 year old white French guy. And he said, a woman at 50 is invisible. And I was like, do you know what, fuck right. you, yeah, monsieur, yeah. I'm gonna do this show. And there's, <laughs> there's something about, um, people think sometimes with change and reinvention, and I really hope this is something that comes out of everything we're still going through with the pandemic, that when you, that change means compromise or change means worse or change means less. And there's so many TV shows about downsizing, you know, I'll give up my amazing job in the city to go and, you know, be a lavender farmer. And that's great. Good luck to people who do that. But I love the idea. You can bring all that stuff with you and make yourself bigger than you were before, more visible. Like your mum is, your mum's world is getting broader just at a time when many people are expected to just sit on the couch and, and watch telly and her world's still getting wider and she's still getting more curious. So I love the fact that when you talk about that, you're, you're upsizing with change and you're letting failure push you bigger, not smaller, which is a really, I think, a message of, I hope, real hope for people right now when things look so bleak. But it is, it is that, and you got to remember as well, this is just me. I take money out of it always. Yeah. <laughs> take money out of it trust me because if you make it about money i'll do this for the money and then, and then like when you do job you know you do job sometimes for the money because you have to work obviously i understand but in general if that's your main motivation it's wrong it's i crazy. always say to my kids having money you know because i've been lucky i had a well-paid career for years now i get paid in beer tokens but for years i was paid in real <laughs> hard cash <laughs> and i always say to my kids you know having money does not make you happy not having money will make you unhappy but there's a big difference and you'll always want the next level up you know when i was uh, you know board level in the media people around me were like taking their kids on holiday to the four seasons hotel and and, and i used to think you know you're not a senior vice president for this company you're borrowing that title and like I am and that's not who we are if we honestly think we're the person at the front of the plane and we're the person who has all this that that is going to go when the company decides they're sick of us which they will so we're always someone who's not defined by the money what would be your favorite joke now that you're the uh, now that you're Ireland's uh, biggest export as a comedian <laughs> most definitely not that I can tell you um I'm telling you shitty the worst joke I know I yeah, know go on. It's not one of mine or Neil Delamere's, is it? I don't know. This guy, Jimmy, sitting at a bar and he's crying and his mate comes over and goes, Jimmy, what's wrong? He goes, my wife's, my wife, my wife is going to leave me. She goes, I'm getting sick all over myself. And she told me if I get drunk again, she's going to leave me. And he, he goes, look, don't worry about it. He goes, look, what you do is you go home, say you had a few drinks, right? But some guy got sick on you, but he gave you this 20 quid for the dry cleaning right so just just have him down he goes okay so he gets home like three o'clock in the morning and the wife goes fucking mental right he loses it and he goes no he goes i, I was in a bar i had a few drinks yeah and 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 someone got sick on me but but he gave me 20 euro for the dry cleaning he goes, but that's 40 euro and he goes the guy who shot my pants gave me 20 euro as well 
What I like most about that, which people listening won't be able to see, was you trying not to laugh during it, which is a good, uh, that's also a good ploy as a stand up uh, to keep looking like, oh my God, I can't stop laughing because this is going to be so funny. Uh, <laughs> I have heard a version of that joke, uh, but not as well told, Baz. So you're doing the right thing uh, with your stand up. Not a real joke, joke guy. I'm more a self deprecating kind of person. <laughs> You've but, set yourself up as the next uh, comedian uh, after Jaro Brain. Uh, that's what we're expecting. As a kind of parting, uh, parting point, if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Uh, I, I, I'd honestly say is, is what we mentioned earlier on about owning your own power, being aware of yourself and, and, and finding a way of believing in yourself. You know, it helps to surround yourself with other positive people, negative people stay away from, you know, mood hoovers. I worked in sales for years, right? And there's this thing that you would have where you go over to a water fountain and it'd be someone going, God, the leads are really bad, aren't they? And someone else would go, yeah, the leads are shit. They're, they're, they're not working. And before you know it, there's like six people telling you how bad the leads are. Meanwhile, I used to be over on the phone nailing those shitty leads that everyone else was talking about. If you surround yourself with people who will suck the energy out of you, they will destroy you. They really will. You have to protect yourself. But that's why it's very important to have you your own power know what you're like that imposter syndrome close your eyes think what it took to get to do where you are think what you had to do that's why you're where you are you know i love you, that i love you that deserve to be here you deserve you've worked for it no one handed you this shit you went out and you did it you sat in a room you wrote your material you got up on a stage and you nailed it you that's why you're here other people can't do what you can do I feel yeah, like I'm about to walk over hot coals in my bare no, feet, no, like you, like I've just had my true. own. It's yeah. true, because everyone in our industry, we suffer from that so bad, that validation need, validate. Validate yourself, seriously, validate yourself. And if not, have enough children that you've literally got your own cheerleading team. I, I don't even like. need eating. I just put them on as a blanket. <laughs> I just cover them all over myself. Like it's, it's or your hair, which I'm noticing is uh, you've got the lockdown hair going on. You're trying to match your, match your poodle with your hair. You're like, I'm going to, me and the poodle we're gonna <laughs> this is it like i'll do whatever it takes <laughs> to save on rent honestly my kids are like flatmates who owe me money they're just hanging around corridors at the moment you know Namaste, that was the force of nature that is baz ashmawi Oh, and by the way, the Neil we kept mentioning is our friend and top comic, Neil Delamere. We've put some links to his stuff in the show notes. Now, every episode, I pick a thing, as you know, inspired by my guest that I am going to try. This week, I'm going to work on my imposter syndrome. Someone recently described to me imposter syndrome as comparing your insides with other people's outsides. And we think of imposter syndrome as a fear of being found out. But it was actually a term that was coined by two female psychotherapists in the 1970s to describe individuals with an incapacity to internalise their own success. I'm also going to read a book that's been sitting in my study for ages now called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which is written by Mark Manson. The subtitle of the book is A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life. As Manson says, fuck positivity, let's be positive. Shit is fucked and we have to live with it. That's a lot of fucks and you can't say fairer than that. 
So that's it for the show this week. Thank you so much to Baz for joining me. You can check out the show notes as usual for details of all the things we've mentioned in this week's episode. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, with music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, although those things are true, but because it does help other people find the show. And we will be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to comedy's favourite couple, Sarah Barron and Jeff Lloyd, about love and life in lockdown. That was a terrible negotiation. You I know, but to... I'm just showing that I can admit when I'm wrong. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.